Our first reading is Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. Quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The first thing that we need to see in this last of our meditations on the missional acts in the book of Acts is that the mission of God is unhindered by religious rejection. I wonder if you know what a hipster is. Actually, I don't exactly know myself. To the best of my knowledge, a hipster is someone who is cool, but not mainstream. So a hipster likes music, artists, authors that you've never heard of. They dress a little bit weird, but cool. They're obsessed with coffee, but you'll never see them with a cup of Starbucks, that's for sure. As soon as the music and art and clothes and coffee hipsters have discovered becomes popular, they abandon it with religious zeal. Now, I'm not saying that religious people are always hipsters, but the Jews in Pisidian Antioch have something in common with hipsters. They could not stand, verse 45, the fact that Jesus and his movement were gaining the attention of so many people. They would rather lose their Messiah than let their small, exclusive religion become available to everyone, and especially to Gentiles. They would rather abandon their own mission and purpose to be a community, verse 47, that's meant to bring light to the Gentiles than watch their community expand to actually include outsiders. I wonder what our reaction would be if suddenly lots of people in Zurich started showing up to our church, people who weren't here when we celebrated our 50th anniversary 10 years ago, people who don't have any familiarity with our customs and our traditions. I wonder if we'd be inclined to bolt the doors shut. I wonder if we'd become religious hipsters. Well, Jesus has come to give us life and life more abundantly. Paul says that the Jews in Pisidian Antioch were, quote, unworthy of eternal life, verse 46, because they were jealous of the attractiveness of Jesus, their Messiah. But you know what? The Lord Jesus and his mission to bring life to women and men and boys and girls from every people and every tribe and tongue, it will be unhindered by religious rejection. Our second reading is Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But, verse 38, Paul did not think it wise to take him but he, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia 
and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The second thing we need to know about the mission of God in the book of Acts is that it's unhindered, not just by religious rejection, but also by sharp disagreement. It's unhindered by sharp disagreement. Oh boy, nobody likes conflict. And isn't Luke, by the way, spoiling the story of the missional movement by sticking in this sharp criticism into his story? Isn't this one of those things that you'd want to exclude from the committee's minutes so that no one else has to know that there's been some lack of harmony? Wouldn't it be better not to make John Mark look bad for leaving Paul in the middle of their trip, verse 38? Wouldn't it be better not to make Paul sound like somebody who can't just forgive and forget this whole thing with John Mark? Won't conflict curb the mission? Answer is apparently not. After all, the book of Acts doesn't end in chapter 15 with this disagreement. It goes on for another 13 chapters. The mission doesn't stall out here in Antioch. It reaches all the way to the emperor's backyard in Rome. Now, nobody wants conflict, but nobody can stop the spread of this gospel story just because there's a sharp disagreement. You know, it's possible for two well-meaning and faithful leaders like Paul and Barnabas to have to split up for a while because they disagree about something like John Mark's maturity and loyalty. Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, he says, look, John Mark will be fine. It won't happen again. Paul, who's kind of Mr. Intensity, says, yes, someday, maybe, but not today. And Luke doesn't tell us which of these guys was right. He just says that they sharply disagreed and ended up parting ways for a time. You know what Luke does say, though? That there was good work to do in Cyprus and that the churches in Syria and Cilicia were strengthened. So off they went to move the mission forward, just in different directions for a time. You know, sometimes it's okay to go your separate ways. Sure, you're probably going to have to come back later and say, listen, I'm sorry for my stubborn attitude. Yes, the end goal is to be able to rejoice together in what God does despite the difficulty. And in fact, a few years later, John Mark will become Paul's partner again. With God, all things are possible, even and especially the unhindered advance of the Jesus movement, despite sharp disagreement. Our next scripture lesson is Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 34. Paul's making a speech at the Areopagus in Athens, and he continues, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him 
and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the, the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Well, you can't have the Jesus story without Jesus's resurrection. You can't have an international missional movement without the sheer power of the resurrection. You can't have a bunch of scared disciples who then get out onto the streets of the Roman Empire sharing the good news of Jesus until the reality of the resurrection has wrapped itself around the hearts of the community. You're never going to get Paul, the zealous Jewish scholar, to climb up the Areopagus of Athens, preaching to pagans, quoting pagan poets, persuading Greeks to come and meet his Jewish Messiah, unless that Jewish Messiah is back from the dead and alive in power. And Paul is persuasive, but of course, persuasion can only get you so far. These Athenians will need a miracle that's as significant and magnificent as the miracle of the resurrection itself to get them to set aside their skepticism and to join this rather Jewish movement of theirs. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered at the mere mention of the resurrection of the body of Jesus. But some people said, Let's meet again tomorrow. We want to hear more about this Jesus fellow. In our creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's an audacious thing to say in ancient Athens, as well as in today's Europe. But in ancient Athens, some people believed and followed. A woman named Demarius, a man named Dionysius. They both said, indeed, Jesus is Lord and he is alive, and I trust in him. And today, here in Switzerland, just since I've come a couple years ago, I've seen a woman and a man receive Jesus and believe in his resurrection through the ministry of our church. And I know of another woman and another man who are saying, basically, I'll hear more about this from you. You see, the Jesus movement requires us to proclaim the resurrection, and some people will sneer but the Jesus of the Jesus movement is alive, and his resurrection provides the power to break through the barriers of defensive minds and hard hearts, because the mission is unhindered by secular skepticism. The mission is unhindered by religious rejection, by sharp disagreement, and by secular skepticism. Our third reading is Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. 
Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who, were, who by grace had believed, for he vigor, vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So the missional movement is unhindered by religious rejection, by sharp disagreement, by secular skepticism, and now fourthly, the religious or the missional movement is unhindered by incompleteness. Studies show that people fear public speaking more than they fear death. Can you believe that? So the comedian Jerry Seinfeld says that that means that if you're at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than up in the front giving the eulogy. And here's Apollo. What a name, by the way. It means destroyer. I think that if I'd have known that when we were naming our boys, I would have named one of them the destroyer Apollo. He's super serious about the the scriptures. And he might be the best preacher in the whole world. If normal people fear public speaking more than death, take a guess what public speakers fear more than death. You know what I think it is? Saying something that's wrong and getting called on it. In fact, that's why normal people usually don't want to speak either. Everyone's afraid of being found out that people will know what you don't know. And that's what happens to Apollo. He's preaching his heart out in the synagogue. And meanwhile, a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, kind of look at each other and they whisper to each other, he doesn't know. He's proclaiming Jesus publicly with great power, but he has no idea that Jesus has commanded a new baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so Priscilla and Aquila invite him over for lunch after church. They give him a good meal, maybe a glass of wine, and then gently, quote, they explained to him the way of God more adequately. See, Apollo's worst fear came true. He was found to be incomplete. But this sister and brother simply showed him what he was lacking. They loved him. They helped him. They encouraged him. And the next thing you know, he's off to Achaia, where a little more complete than he was before, verse 27, he was a great help to those who by grace believed. Did you catch those last words there? Our lives and the way we live them matter. Our beliefs and the way we communicate them matter. But here's the thing. Nobody follows Jesus because we have everything together, whether in our life or in our speech. Why do people trust Jesus? 
people trust Jesus by grace. Apollo was a great help to those who by grace believed. You see, that frees you and me from being tongue-tied and terrified that we'll be found incomplete in what we know and in how we're living. It's such good news to us that the mission is unhindered by completeness because our incompleteness is overwhelmed by God's grace in Christ. Our third passage comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So the missional movements unhindered by religious rejection, by sharp disagreement, by secular skepticism, by incompleteness, and now fifth, their missional movement is unhindered by boring sermons. So I'm a big fan of morning and evening worship. Why wouldn't you want to be in God's presence with God's people, hearing God's words, singing God's praise, both at the beginning and at the end of the Lord's day? Why wouldn't you want to offer both the morning and the evening sacrifices of praise? But look here, there's one argument in the Bible against coming back for evening worship, and we just read it. There's a chance that if you sit on the window on the second or third story of the church and you hear a boring sermon by somebody who just won't shut up, they just keep going on and on, you could fall out of the window and die. So don't go to evening worship. It's deadly. Now, what could be worse for the Jesus movement than the rumors that the best of its preachers put people to sleep with their long, boring sermons? Well, what could be worse than that? That people die from listening to these boring sermons. Now, Paul raises Eutychus from the dead, and he gives him a good meal. But then he gives him a seat back in the sanctuary, away from the windowsill this time. And then he just starts his sermon again. It's already been till midnight, and now he preaches until sunrise. Friends, not every preacher or every sermon or every Sunday school lesson or every small group session is going to lift your heart into the seventh heaven every time. Sometimes sermons and church are going to put you to sleep. It's okay. You are human, and so is everyone else. Be safe. Don't be discouraged. The mission is unhindered 
by boring sermons. Our sixth lesson for the day comes from Acts chapter 27, verses 39 to 44. Paul and his companions have been on a long journey aboard a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to have themselves a shipwreck, and he's giving a speech to the passengers. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So the missional movement is unhindered by religious rejection, sharp disagreement, secular skepticism, incompleteness, boring sermons, and now the missional movement is unhindered by shipwreck. So I just recently finished Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. And let me tell you, it is long. And honestly, after 700 pages, it kind of feels like you've been on a whaling ship at sea for three years. From Acts chapter 20 until the end of the book, eight chapters later, it kind of feels like we're following Paul on the Mediterranean Sea for a trip that takes forever, from Ephesus to Jerusalem, and then from Palestine to Rome, with a lot of drama along the way. And here in the penultimate chapter of Acts, the sailors are facing a storm and the certainty of shipwreck. Everyone's worried. The merchants are worried about the loss of cargo. The soldiers are worried about the prisoners they're guarding. The ship is doomed. But Paul is not worried He's not worried about the movement. He has, after all, divine assurance that they will survive. But Paul knows that even if they all die, the mission cannot be hindered by a shipwreck. Now, Jews had always been afraid of the sea. But Paul's fear has been deflated by his love for Jesus. And even more so by Jesus' love for him. Paul is glad to go home as he says in Philippians, to be with the Lord. But as long as Paul is alive, he will gladly go wherever he's called and he will pour himself out as an offering on the altar of people's faith. This is what's gotten into him. Paul knows that if it's his time to go, the movement itself can never be hindered by a shipwreck or by anything else. I wonder if you have the same confidence in the missional movement of Jesus.
And finally, our seventh and last scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 28, verses 15 and 16, and 28 to 31. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, that is, the brothers and sisters in Rome, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Verse 28, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there, in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the missional movement cannot be hindered by religious rejection, sharp disagreement, secular skepticism, incompleteness, boring sermons, shipwreck, and not by arrest either. This is a kind of a weird way to end the story, huh? This is Luke's two-volume tale of the coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, and his sending of his servants into the heart of the empire to spread the good news. And it ends with Paul being under house arrest? This is kind of a weird ending. It's also kind of a cliffhanger too. He's awaiting trial. What's going to happen to him? Is Caesar going to give him a pardon or is he going to be executed in Rome? What happens to the movement that began 28 chapters earlier or that began with the beginning of Luke's gospel or that began with the the beginning of human history, like in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, starting with Adam? Did we come all this way to be hindered, to be stuck? Paul is under house arrest in Rome. So much, we think, for the freedom of the spirit and the unhindrance of the missional movement. But actually, we need to read a little bit closer. The story is not over, not at all. Paul is now in the heart of the empire, And he's allowed to live in his own rented house with a guard. And people are allowed to come and go. He's encouraged by his visitors. He encourages his visitors. And most importantly, he is able, verse 31, to proclaim the kingdom of God right in Caesar's backyard. He's in chains for the gospel. But as he tells Timothy, the gospel is not in chains. He's able to proclaim eternal life in Jesus' name right there in the midst of the eternal city. He's able to speak right there in the belly of the beast, verse 31, with all boldness and without hindrance. And so it ends. But like every good story, the characters by the end have been changed. There was a rock and roll song popular when I was in high school that ended with these lines. 
every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. A new beginning has begun, and it's the same story here in Acts. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're in the heart of Europe. We're from all over earth. We're singing of the Savior. We're seeking to grow together and to reach out in Christ. We're hearing boring sermons. We're experiencing some sharp disagreements, bumping into secular skepticism and religious rejection. We're always incomplete. We're in the middle of the shipwreck of a pandemic. Sometimes we feel like we're in the freest place on earth, and yet we are in chains. But the mission, friends, is unhindered. The only thing that might be hindered is our hearts. If the unhindered mission hasn't reached your heart and my heart with the liberty of the good news of Jesus and his love and his reign, then we will lose heart and we will end up opting out of the mission. But the mission will go on unhindered. Friends, don't be hindered by a hard heart. Don't be hindered by losing heart. Be inspired by the hearts of the disciples on fire with the freedom of the children of God. Join the missional movement that has the inherent power to blast right through the gates of hell. Friends, there's no abundant life like being alive and engaged as an agent of the mission of Jesus. And there's no one who has gone on mission like Jesus to come and to seek and to save you and me without any hindrance. Not even death could hinder him. And nothing can hinder his mission. And you and I get the privilege of partaking with him in it. What a thrill. Lord God, thank you for these studies in the book of Acts these past seven weeks. Help us to take heart, for you have overcome the world. Help us to engage in the missional movement in small and great ways as we rely on Jesus and as we find ourselves unhindered in his own resurrection power. Grant us the ability to speak well of him and to live well for him. And most of all, glorify him in our midst as we submit ourselves once again to your mission. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.